welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. The presidency of Donald Trump has been full of controversy politically, culturally, and in the historical context of the presidency itself. And perhaps no one knows this better than the person who is joining us now. David Frum is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. In 2001 and 2002, he was a speechwriter for former President George W. Bush. David Frum, welcome to Detroit Today. Such a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So let's start with uh, your first book about the Trump presidency, Trumpocracy, which came out in 2018, about two years into the first four-year term of President Trump. Uh, Let's talk about over the course of these last four years how your view of the Trump presidency has evolved and how your view of his supporters has evolved over that time. Thank you. Well, and thank you for mentioning Trumpocracy. The two books, Trumpocracy and Trumpocalypse, actually form a, a cycle. Um, Trumpocracy is a, a study of how Trump gained and used power. It was written early in the Trump presidency as a warning. Um, Trumpocalypse comes later. It's an assessment. Um, it assesses how much damage has been done, how the da- uh, how the damage was done, how enduring it's likely to be, and how we protect the country and the world because. The world is important because a lot of the worst of the damage is to America's standing in the world. So the, um, the, the two books fit together. Where my, my view has um, changed to, to this degree, um, I have been struck by how psychologically needy Donald Trump is. Um, he's much less disorganized and effective um, in achieving what he wants to do, but he remains very effective as an agent of destruction. Donald Trump has this genius for finding weaknesses, not only in people, but in countries. He found our weaknesses, and he's using them. Hmm. So there's a section of the book where you talk about the name of the book, which in light of the pandemic now seems more appropriate than ever. The word apocalypse comes from the Greek word to unveil, uh, a revelation. That seems like such a fertile concept to explore in relation to where we find ourselves right now. Yeah, well, we, like in everyday speech, we use apocalypse to mean something catastrophic, zombie apocalypse, you know, murder hornet apocalypse. But as you say, um, it doesn't mean just destruction. It means um, a vision of a, of a new possibility. And one of the things I focus on in the book is, is, is this understanding of the new possibilities. Uh, you know, we can spend all our lives um, talking about what's gone wrong over the past four years. And as I say at the end of the book, I've thought so much about this, I can hardly bear it anymore. But um, our job is to repair our country. Uh, People sometimes ask me about, don't you ever get Trump fatigue? And to those of you who have been parents, uh, if you've ever had to sit over a a sick child, it gets very, very fatiguing, but it's your child. And so you don't get up until the child is well. And that's the way I feel about this. I mean, so much of what this book is about is about how we can put the country back on its feet. You know, through it all, something like a third of the country has shown itself willing to put up with just about anything, including outright attacks on democracy, outright attacks on the right of their fellow citizens to cast a free and fair vote. Um, You're not going to change the minds of those, those 30%, but what you can do is make the country less vulnerable to them. Because right now, the way the country is organized, some people's political 
uh, views matter much more than others. And the 30% who are leading us in a non-democratic way, they are advantaged over the people who live in the big cities, on the coasts, and the knowledge centers who want a country that can move into the 21st century. So, so you have long argued against the idea of calling the president an authoritarian or, or a fascist. Talk about that and, and what words you would prefer yeah. to use to describe him. Well, um, uh, authoritarian, I don't have a problem with, um, and he's certainly a crook, so I call him, I call him that. Um, I've had tr- I mean, people use the word fascism, and um, th- look, there's clearly something going on in, on our earth where we have movements, not just in the United States, uh, that are celebrate you know racial domination, uh, that are fascinated with violence. Um, and they bear a resemblance to the fascist movements of the 1920s and 30s. But they also have important differences. So I'm, I, there's a section in Trumpocalypse where I try to understand this global movement of these kinds of ultra-reactionary uh, um, movements that you see not only in the United States but on the continent of Europe, um, in um, uh, emerging democracies like Brazil and India. How do we talk about them? And I, I still haven't found the right word. I, I suggest at one point in the book that just as – you know, you may remember from your high school science classes, if you had an, um, a compound that was like an alkaline but wasn't quite one, you called it an alkaloid. Mm-hmm. Or if you looked up in the skies and you saw something that was like a planet but wasn't quite, you called it a planetoid. Uh, so I suggest we can call maybe call these movements fascioid. They're not quite fascist, but they have a family resemblance. And they're not just here in the United States. They're around the world. Mm. Uh, my guest is David Frum, a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, which is out this year. Uh, He also uh, wrote a book called Trumpocracy, which came out in 2018, two years into the Trump presidency. Uh, In 2001 and 2002, he was a speechwriter for President George W. Bush. He is uh, one of the Republicans who has been highly critical of the turn that the party has made toward Donald Trump and the things that uh, the president himself has done. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think of how President Trump has handled things here in the U.S., especially during the pandemic. Uh, Do you think his actions over the last few months are going to help him in his 2020 election, re-election bid, or are they going to hurt him? Uh, Are you happy with uh, the other things that the president has done, the other issues that he has made the centerpiece of the first four years of his presidency. Uh, As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, hashtag to drape today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to, to listeners and their comments, uh, I, I want to get you, David, to, to, to react to the way the president has handled this pandemic. I, 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 there's, a, there's a quote about the presidency, and I, I, I won't know what the exact source of it is, um, but I, I once heard someone say that, that you, you are not electing a president to deal with the problems that the nation has. You are electing a president to confront uh, the unpredictable, the things yeah. that, that you absolutely could never foresee. Right. Uh, and, and that's why you're looking at things like judgment and character uh, as much as, as someone's record. Uh, with that lens, I wonder what you make of what we've seen over the last few months right. with Donald Trump. 
Well, this is a a vindication of something I often tell my friends who work on campaigns, that um, you will be campaigning on education or jobs or whatever issues you are thinking are important. And you give blood, sweat, and tears, and you elect your person, and they take the oath of office, and they move into the Oval Office, and you're just about ready to go to work on all of those issues. And at that moment, 1202, somebody comes rushing into the office and says, Mr. Madam President, there's a giant meteor heading straight to Earth. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. This is now the media. That's your presidency, presidency. right? That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, that's what happened to Donald Trump. And he said at that point, "Giant meteor, I don't believe it." Um, my friends, the, the meteor dictators, they would never do that to me. In fact, I was working on some very profitable pieces of business with the meteor people <laughs> just a few minutes ago. Um, let's just let's just keep this quiet and say the meteor is a hoax. Um, Donald Trump got into this. Um, problem in the following way. Um, through 20, I, when I wrote the bulk of the book that became Trumpocalypse, I foresaw a recession coming to the United States in 2020 because of the president's trade wars. Um, and the Trump, the economy got soft in various ways in the second half of 2019. And Trump saw this coming too, and he became more and more frantic about it. So through the fall of 2019, he was desperately working on um, some kind of trade deal, any kind of trade deal with the Chinese to give him some face-saving way out of his trade war that was threatening a recession. And those talks were coming to a culmination in December of 2019 and January of 2020, just as the virus was building inside China. So Trump could not afford to acknowledge that problem um, because uh, it would upset his deal that he was looking on to save his election. Worse than that, as part of trying to get along better with the Chinese after having started this trade war, he was pulling American eyes and ears out of China. I, not a lot of people understood this beforehand. But um, you know, there's a lot of continuity in the American government. George Bush uh, got very worried about pandemic risks um, in the last couple of years of his presidency. Mm-hmm. And he began talking about this a lot. And the Obama people then moved into a government that hadn't we hadn't done a lot in the Bush administration. We'd started really thinking we need to take this seriously. And some people remember there's a nasty bird flu in 2005. Mm-hmm. And that's what really jolted the president's thinking. It burned itself out. Um, And so the Obama people began then building capacities inside China. There was an American attached to the Chinese Department of Agriculture. There are Americans attached to um, the Chinese labs. Um, And of course, there were a lot of journalists moving around inside China, not totally freely, but free enough um, that it gave you, you didn't have to rely on the Chinese. And President Trump began pulling these people out um, and pulled out the, the last bunch of them in the summer of 2019. And I think that was a concession to the Chinese. They didn't like the eyes and ears inside their country. They wanted to be the sources of information. And so we were blind. And we were blind in the crucial periods when we could have acted decisively to stop this thing before it became so terrible. We couldn't have prevented it entirely. That's not Trump's fault. But the fact that there are that the actions that nothing serious began to happen until the end of March mm-hmm. until early January, that's on him. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk to you about where Donald Trump comes from uh, and how we got here. And, and there are a lot of people, there are a lot of, you have a lot of critics uh, who, who would say that many of the things that were done during the Bush presidency, many of the things that were said and the rhetoric the use of rhetoric during that that presidency laid the groundwork 
for someone like Donald Trump to 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 rise to power. Of course, uh, I, I think you can't subtract out of that the backlash to the Obama presidency itself. Um, but there are a lot of people who say uh, that that folks like you have blood on your hands at this point uh, because of the things that you were a part of in the Bush presidency. How do you, how do you answer that? Well, I don't even know quite what that means. Um, you know, the, the uh, look, lots of Americans voted against the Bush presidency. You don't have to be a partisan of the Bush presidency. And you, there are a lot of mistakes that you can, um, you can judge in the Bush presidency. Um, it's a bumpy presidency. I often say about it, you know, it started with Pearl Harbor, it ended with the Great Crash, and it had Vietnam in between. Um, so it, it was a very challenging presidency, and in many ways, the record was not successful. Um, so you can you can say all of those things. It's also true that the Bush presidency ended with one of the biggest successes in the history of American government. I think the management of the 2008 crisis, um, it, I mean, it when you think about what was what the meteor that was on the way and how we got just an ordinary recession out of it instead of a global Great Depression. And one of the other things, and I've t I talk about this in the new PBS documentary about the Bush presidency, the, uh, the transition of 2008-2009, one of the was is maybe the greatest success in recent memory in, in the government. I mean, one of the uh, reasons the, the Great Recession, the Great Depression got so bad is between the time of November of 32 uh, and uh, March of 33 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt took over, there was no communication at all between the Herbert Hoover and outgoing Herbert Hoover administration and the incoming Roosevelt one. The Bush and Obama people built a transition that is, I think, generally seen as the most successful in American history. Um, Obama people attended uh, but didn't speak at the meetings that were taking place in October and November and December of, of 2008. Um, and they were, they were fully ready to go and they took over in January of 2009. Um, and uh, I think we had a, a, a success. I mean, look, all events, Donald Trump, the Donald Trump event, it, yeah, it has root, historical roots. And I talk about that in, in the first book mm -hmm. I wrote. Mm -hmm. um, and the radicalization of the Republican Party, um, I think, uh, is a big part of the story. You can take that back as far as you want, but to my mind, the crucial moments come after the redistricting of 2010. And what, what happened was after the Great Recession, after the, uh, after the defeat of 2008, um, because the economy grew slowly, Republicans did well in 2010, and they were then were able to redistrict in two, in, after the census of 2010. And what they understood was that the radical turn of the Republican Party in the Tea Party was not consistent with winning elections in America as it exists. And beginning in 2010, that's when you see a much more, I mean, not really since Reconstruction have we had this, a much more conscious effort to make it difficult for some people to vote and to take democratic competition off the table and to say, if our ideas can't win the contest of democracy, well, then let's make the country, let's shrink the electorate until our ideas can win. Right. And that is something that really gets going after that census in 2010. Yeah. Uh, I want to go to Ed in Ferndale who wants to follow up on this this question of the linkage between the Trump presidency and, and the past. Ed, uh, go ahead. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. Mr. Fromm, um, I read a lot of political commentary. I'm a, kind of a nerd about it, and I've read your stuff for a long time. And... If I recall, you're the late Peter Worthington from the Toronto Sun was your father-in-law, wasn't he? That's correct. 
Yeah, and I've <laughs> read a lot of his stuff too. So, like I said, I'm a nerd on this stuff. I didn't know that, Ed. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Peter Worthington was a legendary foreign correspondent yes. for the Toronto Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, in the room when um, Ruby shot Oswald, and he's been. Um, uh, in fact, you can see him in the film, and uh, so we get a lot of interesting mail ever since because of that. <laughs> I'm sure. Sure, I've got family in Toronto, so that's how I started reading him. So. But anyways, and I'm going to be nice about this, but I want to come back to, you know, what laid the groundwork for President Trump. And you said, Mr. Frum, that you couldn't really think of an example. And I would put it, and I'd have to look it up if you ever actually did this. For me, the turning point was in 2003, when a lot of folks on your side and in the Bush administration said that people like me who opposed our invasion of Iraq were not just wrong, but basically unpatriotic and not worthy to be Americans. And I know I'm paraphrasing there, but that's a general gist I got from it. Hmm. I would draw a straight line from that kind of rhetoric to the 30 or 40% who still support Mr. Trump and see anyone else who diverges from that as also being unpatriotic. And that's basically my thought. And thanks for the, thanks for giving me the time, Stephen. Yeah. Ed, I really appreciate the call and the, and the very thoughtful way you, you, you put that question, David, from, uh, how do you yeah. answer that? How do you well, answer? This, this, yeah, go ahead. I, I don't know what my, my late father-in-law had to do with it. My, my mother was also a prominent journalist and I honor, of course, all of their memories and, um, uh, um, they didn't live to see the events of today, and, and it'd be interesting to hear what they would think of them if they were alive, but but they're not. So let's deal with the living. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote an article in 2003 for National Review, uh, where I was then a columnist, um, called Unpatriotic Conservatives. And I talked about the um, ultra-right-wing opposition to the Iraq war. Uh, and I didn't, and at the article said in the very first paragraph, I'm not talking about all criticism of the Iraq war. Um, there are a lot of, and, and indeed that same day I wrote another column of, of, of debating a friend of mine who was a, a skeptic of the Iraq war. And I think everyone who goes to war knows the things that can go wrong. But the 2003 article, which is on, you can read in, on my website, davidfrom.com, and you can assess it for yourself. I th- think that article really stands up prophetically as a warning of the tendencies that were emerging on some of the right-wing critics of the Iraq war that would lead to Donald Trump, the national chauvinism, the contempt for democratic ideals, the alienation from the country, the refusal to accept that America uh, was a country that belonged to everybody and not just to certain parts of the population. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think we have really seen this in, tr- in the Trump years is that um, we are living in a time where what old categories of left and right are dissolving. And it's often very hard to tell who's on the far left and who's on the far right. You see that in the pandemic where, um, you know, there the people who believe that Bill Gates invented this virus in order to sell a vaccine that's going to put a microchip in your body and track you. Some of those people, um, uh, you know, wear tie-dyed pants and think of themselves as left, and some of them wear combat fatigues and think of themselves as right, but they agree on on the essential points. And, and meanwhile, as we saw in the 2008-2009 transition, that, you know, between people who um, supported George W. Bush and people who supported Barack Obama, there are important, important differences. Um, but we also share and this, is, I think, has been one of the things we've been discovering in the Trump years. And, you know, I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. That was not an easy thing. Well, it was not a 
Hmm. It was not an easy, it, it was an easy thing to do. It was, it was so obviously the right, it was not, it was not an unconsidered thing to do. Um, I'd never cast a vote for a Democrat for any office before. Um, but I, I did it because I recognized that I disagree with her about a hundred issues, but I accept her as a patriot and as someone who is in line with the American traditions. And I'll vote for Joe Biden in 2020 for the same reasons. Um, I remain a registered Republican. And if I, I live in the District of Columbia, when we become a state, as I hope we will, uh, I look forward to working for Democratic candidates for governor of the state of New Columbia, or whatever we call it. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I, it, I hope someday I can run for the state assembly or state senate of New Columbia as a Republican. Um, but uh, what it means to be in a, in a, a de- person with a Democratic outlook is you recognize fellow citizens of the other party where you have commonalities as well, how you're committed to the rules of the game, even if you have favor different outcomes. And I think that's one of the things that's at stake in the Trump years. And one of the reasons I've written these two books to, to warn, this is a different kind of problem from the normal political competition we've had in the past. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I want to just have you address, in the next segment, we're going to talk about white backlash to black progress, which I, I think has a real nexus with the rhetoric of this administration and some of the things that it has done policy-wise uh, through that lens, uh, what's your assessment of, of Donald Trump and the people who work with him? I mean, that, that I think there's, you can see, Donald Trump shows us every day how much of his psychology is shaped by his resentment and dread of Barack Obama, how much he resents him. I mean, that's how he became a political celebrity. Um, having been, I mean, Donald Trump's been running for president since the 1980s, but the thing that really made him a serious candidate was the birther movement and his attempt to deny, uh, um, look, I think here's the best thing I can say about the birthers. Every once in a while, I wake up and realize jumping clowns, Donald Trump, that fool from TV is president of the United States. Something is wrong. And they must've felt that same way, seeing Barack Obama as president. I, I, and that just as I, I try to like grasp for, for some way to understand how someone who's obviously fraudulent and criminal and psychologically damaged as Donald Trump um, can be president, uh, I think a lot of white Americans uh, tried to understand how someone like Barack Obama could be president, and they found it as disorienting as I find it that Donald Trump is president. And they, uh, I mean, I've come up with, I hope, a pretty rational set of explanations, but people need explanations. And if you can't develop rational ones, you turn to irrational ones. Hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the Tea Party can be understood that way, not just to the person of Barack Obama, the individual, um, but uh, but to what he symbolized. I mean, for me, I, I wrote a lot about this during the Barack Obama administration. It was it was a weird time because I would say, people would say, what do you think of him? And I said, I, I don't know. I think they're spending too much money and uh, I don't like some of these regulations. And then you'd hear, well, he's a communist, right? No, he's not a communist. Uh, well, I, I, uh, I think he's, you know, Oh, you know, I, I don't like the shape of the Iran deal. I think he's being too trusted Iranian promises. Ah, so you think he's born in Kenya? No, he wasn't born in Kenya. Can, can I get the criticism out before you make me say something insane? <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that he was, he was, Barack Obama's kind of like a, a, 
a normal American political figure. I mean, I, I personally went to college with a hundred people like him. Uh, <laughs> and he's very familiar to me. And, and I've been arguing with him since uh, people like him. I actually, we, we were, we overlapped at law school. Um, I've been arguing with people like him since the 1970s, mm-hmm. but he's not an alien figure. He's a profoundly American figure. You only get people like Barack Obama in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yes, there, there is that. And you can see, um, the effort to um, in this pandemic, where, where what if your state is twenty percent black, forty percent of the dead will be black. If your state is forty percent black, eighty percent of the dead will be black. I mean, the, the the Trump presidency confronts us with the way in which so much progress has happened, but the progress has not been completed, and it challenges us um, to finish the work that was started during the Civil War. It's still not done, and I think this period of the twenty tens, the vote in Trumpocracy talks a lot about what. The shrinkage of the vote between 1870 and 1920. Yes. Uh, and how you can see that, you know, that uh, fewer people cast a ballot in the state of South Carolina in the in the election of 1920 than cast in the election of 1872. Uh, even though the state had, I think, doubled in population over the time. And not just black people had their votes taken away from them, white people too. Uh, and uh, we are living through a similar kind of um period now and we need to return to that work of reconstruction so among the reforms i talk about in trump apocalypse are you know we are going to need a new voting rights act to replace the one that was substantially been gutted sure by the courts yeah yeah and and look it's the argument that the roberts court used was not crazy when when the roberts court struck down sections of the voting rights act they said the voting rights act of 1965 demands extra scrutiny of states that had bad voting practices in the 19th century. And the Roberts court correctly said, that's irrational. And it's true that under the section struck down in 2013, voting practices in Hawaii were held up to very high scrutiny. And Hawaii is a very good actor. And meanwhile, Wisconsin, uh, which is the worst actor north of the Mason-Dixon line, Wisconsin went, was unexamined. So yeah, it, it really is true that your voting practices in the 1890s should not dictate the level of scrutiny you right, get. We can the, use what well, goes on now. Right. So that's what the act will have. So they were not crazy about that. They And they called for, they didn't strike it down altogether. They said, you have to rewrite these sections that are based on history. Good point. You're right. We should rewrite that. We should have done that in 2013. We didn't. We need to do it in 2021. Yeah. Congress has got to get after that. Okay, uh, David Frum, really great to catch up with you and have you here to talk about your book and the Trump presidency. Thank you very much for being here. Pleasure to join you. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with a Cornell history professor about the role of white backlash in the midst of American progressivism. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 